Hello, welcome to Ladywood Podcast. We're two huge fans of the show and one newbie discuss the show through a feminist lens. My name is Sita Sean. I'm Lynn Sternberger. I'm a TV writer out in Los Angeles. I'm Brandi Sperry, also a writer and co-host of the Downton Gabby podcast. Today, we will be discussing the eighth episode of the second season, Childish Things, written by Regina Corrado and directed by Tim Van Patten, both new to us on Deadwood. Van Patten is a pretty epic director, nominated for 10 Emmys for directing this far. Mm. Damn. And excitingly, this was Regina Corrado's first TV credit, but she's had a robust career since and has also been credited as the co-EP on the upcoming Deadwood movie. So here's the the episode summary. Uh, First aired on April 24th of 2005. Wilcott offers on a rich claim operated by two ornery brothers and reports to his boss on their progress overall. Tom Nuttall proudly unveils his new bone shaker bicycle, but some doubt that he can ride it. Swerigen and Bullock discuss alternatives to annexing the hills to Dakota. Whoever wrote this summary put the bicycle before the annexation. (laughs) The bicycle is an important thing. I mean, (laughs) it is actually really fun to watch the town come together for this wager on whether Tom Nuttall can get from one end of the thoroughfare to the other without toppling over on his bicycle. It felt like the only bright spot for a lot of them (laughs) in a long time. Like, unabashed joy at this bicycle thing. Yes. People are really excited. This is like the Carnival Kings town or something. (laughs) Yeah. We've actually never seen them unified in such a way. I also really love the moment where Al asks Dan whether he placed a bet, and Dan's like, no, because I don't think he can do it, but I don't want to bet against him. I'm like, Dan, sweet so little It's <laughs> a sweet moment. <laughs> also, Tom kept repeating the same thing when he was, like, making the wagers in the lead-up to the whole uh, attempt. Those that doubt me suck cock by choice. And he said it, like, three or four times. I was like, what is... Are you going to have t-shirts printed? Like, we've adopted this as our slogan. <laughs> but it, I'm going to use it in the future. It's, it's a little homophobic in this day and age. Because, again, yeah, it's, you should be able to suck cock by choice, <laughs> is what I'm saying. Among consenting adults, all cocksucking is, is approved by our podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If the man is deserving of that. <laughs> I think it is a nice uh, turn on cocksucker because we've just heard cocksucker being used as a noun and now it's active so, yeah. as an action. So. <laughs> Great grammatical lesson. <laughs> Fitting the tone of the of the celebration in Deadwood. So along with the bicycle on the same stagecoach comes the new telegraph operator, Lazanov, who's about to be adopted by Merrick. He's leased out some space in the newspaper mm-hmm. office and this is another he's such a cute little guy and I'm like you don't know what you've got yourself into I'm worried for you already he's like with the town nerd too <laughs> like he's not allied with anybody powerful yeah and yeah. Al's already feeling him out being like is this guy somebody who can tell me what's in the secret messages or what yeah he basically gives him like free reign of the whorehouse if he yeah if he wants to get in yeah speaking of cocksucking he He's like free for life if you like let me read the telegrams is basically <laughs> the undercurrent of everything he says to this poor guy who feigns having not enough English to know what's going on. The the thing that irritated I love Blasnov, first off, but the thing that irritated me about this was that if this were a female character who came into town under the auspices of being a telegraph operator, it would then be revealed that that's not her true purpose. <laughs> and we wouldn't understand her motivation about what the true purpose you know, was. Blasanoff 
could be a Pinkerton. I don't really remember what happens to him. So <laughs> I don't know. Okay, well, I'll eat my words if he turns out to be a Pinkerton, but I don't think he is. I think he's a telegraph operator. So basically, the thing with Al in this episode, we get another cold open, which is interesting, because the last one was uh, Al and Merrick. This one is Al across from Bullock saying, listen, we need to drum up more interest in annexation of their territory or pretend like there is more interest because we need other options because Dakota has been making us its bitch and Hearst could take over Mm -hmm. the whole town if he wanted to and we need another Mm -hmm. bid. So do you still know the judge in Montana? Yeah, can we like use your connections? Was that before the all the naked men were at the mines getting the hose down? Right before. before, It was right before and then Mm -hmm. the next scene is the naked men. That would have been a actually cold. That would have been (laughs) quite a lot. That's a chili open? Literally... inverted open there was so much ding dong in that scene this whole episode is just cock heavy how did they get what did the call for extras look like <laughs> hairy men with untrimmed pubes wanted burly muscular just guys? dirty just to be taking the cold shower I don't know. But that's what we learned from this scene is that um, basically Hearst has some piece of land that's kind of working already, right? He has a lot of the claims. He has a lot of the claims. Join them up, basically. And he doesn't like that the German and Irish labor only want to work during the day. He Mm -hmm. wants to bring in the cheap Chinese labor, which will work 24 hours a day. Um, and, And I think he's trying to massage the situation so that the current... Uh, so there's not a race riot. That's kind of, that's kind of yeah, feels like... Yeah, that's what well, Wolcott's letter is basically like, until we have the right numbers, mm-hmm. until we've taken over so many claims that there are now more day laborers than there are actual like miners with their own areas, we, we're at risk if we tip the boat too much. Mm-hmm. So once they're the majority, they can do whatever they want, right? And nobody can go against them. But apparently they're not at that point just yet. And there's specifically one claim he really has his eye on, which is owned by these two brothers we've never seen before. Right. Who are extremely unpleasant. (laughs) The Manuel brothers. I think, was just wondering, was the last time we heard this device being used, this letter composition, the house? Bullock's house that he was building out of all the different woods? Or was it when we heard Bill's letter to his wife? We haven't really heard it from many, and I was surprised that we were getting it from Walcott. Mm, I don't remember, because Bill's letter wasn't on one of his episodes, right? It was later when the letter was discovered that it was read over the narration. Or was I it on his no, final? It wasn't on the episode where he died. I think Because that's like episode it. four. Yeah, so then I think the we house... saw it in four. So then yeah. the house was the, the latter one. Yeah. It's just a device that stands out because we get so little voiceover in the show. And then all of a sudden we're just transported to... I don't mind it. It's kind of a fun old-timey thing to throw in once in a while. It was definitely it. putting us in Walcott's perspective in a way that we hadn't been granted mm-hmm. access mm-hmm. to before. In a business sense. And I was like, it's only strange because he is a murderer and we're giving him, like, I don't know, he's a savvy business. I, it weirded me out that we were being given mm. access to this man's internal life. I guess I saw it more as a showing of how cruel they're being their business practices as well. Because he's so nonchalant and he's insulting all yes. of these, these, like these, basically like these Cornish people, all they do is try to steal from us. While we're seeing a scene where a guy is shot to death because he shoved a nugget of gold up his ass yeah. mm-hmm. before he had to go in these, like, naked showers. I mean, it's just, like, 
it's just awful the way that they're treating you know, their I workers. I hadn't thought about it, but you're right. There's a disconnect, and that does play into his character as we've yeah. met him yeah. in the present. Thank you for illuminating that for, for That me. was how I took it. When they say Cornish people, do they mean like people from that part of England? People or from Cornwall. From yeah. Cornwall? Yeah. So there was a specific population from Cornwall all showing up in Deadpool. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so like... Very specific, <laughs> yeah. yes. And they have very specific racially charged <laughs> things to say about them. They're all stealers. That's like what they think. They're it's thieves. just so weird. Cornish thieves. <laughs> Cornish thieves. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Irish, I get it. It's a whole country. Germans, I get it. It's a whole country. Chinese immigrants, it's a whole country. But then like Cornwall. No, very specific. Clearly juxtaposed with the cruelty of the Hearst <laughs> operation is... Ellsworth, who we see talking to a dog. His dog's His dog, back. His dog we that he got from we the like, dead man, right? your dog? He must have been leaving it out on the claim because he can't, like, take his dog into almost... Are you working <laughs> through the <laughs> dog ownership on a frontier? Yeah. <laughs> we don't actually know where Ellsworth stays, do we? No. Yeah, what did he just... He, he slept on his claim, remember? That's how he, like, saw so he's so clean. I think he has now... Like, I think he has a shitty house. Like, if Bullock has, like, the nice house on the block, I yeah. think Ellsworth has, like, the house next to him that's, like, ramshackle. So he's wondering what to do about Trixie's idea that he should propose to Alma. And it's, it's just so sweet. I don't know. It's really, I'm, like, clutching at my heart to trace with every Ellsworth scene. Sita, you're the one who has a big crush on him. What did you think of this? I thought it was adorable. <laughs> it was completely adorable. I mean, uh, it skips ahead, but he proposes. Yeah. He, he does it. He actually does it, and he does it in a pretty straightforward way. Although, I think he bungles it a little bit by bringing up his dead wife and his dead daughter. <laughs> oh, no, I like that. Really? Yes. But he never knew that, right? He so, got backstory, finally. Yeah. Maybe he could have had two separate conversations. Yeah, I just think he could have been, like, not immediately, like, oh, I have a dead wife and a dead kid, but I'd be a great husband, you know? It makes sense to me. Because I was like, he needs to explain to Alma what his circumstances are and why this could be a marriage of equals, in mm -hmm. a sense. And he's saying that, like, I've been a married man, I have been a father, but I never got to, like, practically express that. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I could be doing with you. And it's not about your money, and it's not about wanting to bone you, necessarily. It's more like, I'm completing a life cycle that I started, mm -hmm. and this would help you. I think. It is nice that he downplays the side of it that need not be spoken, which is basically you are an unmarried woman who's yeah. locked up. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's a different version of the scene that could really have him playing into that, and I like that they shied away from that because she would be able to put all that together on her own, and mm -hmm. that's not who Ellsworth is. Like, if he's going to do this, he's going to do it mm -hmm. in this way. He's not going to guilt her into it. He's not going to be like, you need me. Yeah. Yeah, I do like that about him. It's a pretty feminist proposal. <laughs> oh god, here we go with the male feminist power <laughs> Um, We don't need to focus on just the male feminists in town, but uh, they get a lot more play than the female characters in some episodes. Oh, the irony that uh, the male so. feminists can act upon their feminism in a way that the female the feminists can are not empowered to do. Um, however, we do get a scene I've been waiting for, like, whoa. Jane visits Joni. Joni is still sitting in yeah. the shuttered brothel. Me by punching the air. I'm so happy that these characters finally met. And we were hinting at it at an earlier episode, yeah. and we didn't want to give way too much for Sita, but... 
Jane and Joey have finally met. And it's strange. <laughs> it seems like Jane has been sent over by Charlie Utter to check on Joey. Because mm-hmm. Charlie's got the full picture. And uh, Jane is trying to get drier. It's a struggle. She still seems pretty fucking drunk. Yep. Yeah. Um, but she makes small talk with her about the vicious murder of her friends. Um, and Joni seems very, like, she's given up. Like, she'll just tell her, like, yeah, sure. They're dead. This is what happened. Will you have a drink with me? Yeah, she's still sitting there sort of, we learned by the end of this episode, basically just waiting for when Wolcott is going to show up. Yeah. And it's very disturbing. <laughs> It's dark and gothic. Joni in her red and black dress in mm-hmm. this with all the shades, room mm-hmm. with her single bottle of bourbon and Basil Hayden. Yes, the Basil <laughs> Hayden that we're gonna get for the movie viewing party. <laughs> yeah, and then Jane is just such a singular character coming in. She doesn't fit into the outside or inside world either. But they both have what Charlie has pointed out. They both lost friends. So I don't know whether Charlie like thinks that this will be mutually beneficial for both of them or if he would just feel better knowing that someone with a gun is around Joni or or what. Or if he's just fed up with, with Jane. Yeah. <laughs> Playing friendship matchmaker. Joni's uh, trying to turn tricks in this episode, right? Oh, yeah. Like half-hearted tricks. <clears throat> yeah, she, she got tossed out of the belly union. Because she was, like, sad as fuck, basically, trying to convince a guy to bone her. And it was the barman at the Bella Union. Like, oh, she wasn't, wasn't, that's even sad. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't, like, a customer. It was, And then he said he would just give her some extra, like, money for the bedding table so that, like, yeah. they could preserve their relationship. And Sai catches on to what she's doing and basically says, you know, like... You don't need to be so sad. Come back. This let's put this behind us. You can mm-hmm. be by my side again. Which sounds not all that attractive, honestly. An offer. So that that was actually in the previous episode, but then we see what happens coming off of that in this episode, which is basically she hasn't taken any of Sai's advice. I mean, at this point, like, not that I want her to go back to Sai, but I don't want her to get killed. So that's the alternative. It seems like she is um, at the end of her. Heather, she's like, come at me, kill me, I don't care. For me, the redemptive beat of that scene, of course, is that it looks like Walcott is going to threaten her life. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, his presence, his mere presence is menacing. And then instead of what could be him cutting her throat, what could be, who knows, mm-hmm. she bashes him in the head with the with basil ribbon. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that was like her, um, it was her reaching out and like reclaiming life. Like, I'm going to defend my life. She definitely has a, a flipping of the switch there where she's like, oh, wait a second. Yeah. Now I that you're right live. in front of me, I don't want to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to live. I guess that that, that, that makes sense to me. It, it is just very, very boring to watch. <laughs> it just <laughs> was. Think? Yeah. I'm just watching Joni sort of working through it, not really having a reaction, and then sort of having... Uh, a type of conversation with Jane, but one that was still really distant. I'm trying to remember, did she have um, that comment with Jane that Maddie was the, the first woman that she met that wasn't afraid of men? Yes. I love that. That was a great scene. That, was, that like, to me, is how women of Deadwood are. That, like, they're, everyone is afraid of men in this, except for Maddie, who, of course, dies. That really shows... She shows you should be afraid of men. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to another comment that Joni made in the previous episode, when she's telling Charlie what 
happens in her sort of piecemeal way and he says why did, did meaning why did mm-hmm. Wolcott kill these women and she says I don't know I'm not, a, not man. a man mm-hmm. yeah you know yeah. <laughs> which is just like a, a chilling line to me just like you can never know why why are men so violent towards women like is that a question we can actually answer I don't think so and then uh, while Joni makes her decision to continue to live which is what that assault feels like Jane does not drink the bourbon, the very fine bourbon. I mean, she jokes about it that she could, that her constitution would like let her drink good bourbon, mm-hmm. <laughs> but she's a drunk, so it feels like an inch towards sobriety. Oh, absolutely. I think it's it, they slide past it a little bit, but I noted it as very significant that you know she holds the drink in her hand for most of the yeah. scene, mm-hmm. and then when she leaves, Joni's like, "You're not gonna have your drink," and she jokes about it, but. You could see that that was that was a decision she made. Like I'm not whether it's not just at this moment, not in front of this person, whatever reason she was able to put the drink down and not have it. That's significant. It is probably because they are soulmates. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm very curious to see what happens in this movie. I'm gonna be disappointed. I know for sure. <laughs> so Al talks to the Indian head. Ellsworth talks to his dog. Meanwhile, Doc is all over this episode because basically he wants to set up visitations with the Chinese prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Sai says that's not necessary because they are disposable. Mm-hmm. And he makes the argument that it's respectful of the other culture to let them continue to use their women like they are disposable. Yeah. And Doc is like not having it. So he withdraws his care from Sai's whores and then basically clarifies that it won't cost him anything. He's just being a decent physician. Uh, And then he gets to see the prostitutes, which is one of the worst. I mean, it is just horrifying Mm -hmm. to see Doc's helplessness in the face of the treatment of these women. Does that mean that Deadwood is actually going to deal with this storyline? No. Probably not. (laughs) Doubtful. But it does go to show that Doc is... Yeah, and if not colorblind, he is uh, has less ingrained racism. Well, there's a line in a scene with Sai that I love, and it's another classic Brad Dorf delivery where he's getting so worked up, and he's like, "I have to live too," and Sai thinks he means he wants to get paid for mm-hmm. taking care of yes. these women. And the doc means I have to be able to live with myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to have a moral compass. Yeah, and, and I can't like yeah let women just be killed. Love that line. Oh, that the other thing about that story that was really messed up is that they don't spend money on food for the women because they're all like um like basically strung out on opium all, all the time. Yeah. So there's, I mean, in, in addition to just like being whores and. and the general terribleness of that that means that there's zero consent in any and in, in any form because they're it's constantly awful. drugged it's like in what world is does this even make gross amoral immoral sense where like it's cheaper to get a new woman than to just feed the one mm-hmm. you have or whatever but i mean it's it's sickening it's like fucking nazi shit it's really really hard to have any kind of any modicum of empathy i had gr- that had grown for Sai. Mm-hmm. Um, as we see him over the seasons is like gone in this one scene to see that he's able to just go along with this. It was interesting because I watched this episode on the same day that I was reading the articles about the owner of the Patriots getting arrested as part of this like Florida set like sex um, like 
it's not just a prostitution ring, but it was to do with sort of like um, actual trafficking, the trafficking of women. Oh my god! Yes, and I was like, it's still happening. I mean, I am aware that it's still happening. I've seen the girl with the dragon tattoo, but <laughs> <laughs> we're educated through pop culture. Um, yeah, it's it's really rough. Yet business just goes on. I mean, while the doc is throwing. Uh, his disgust into Wolcott's face. Wolcott is more interested in have we gotten rid of this body of one of the brothers who shot the other brother mm-hmm. so we can buy the claim. the claim. Like, he's completely disinterested, which isn't a shock from him, but I think like purposefully they juxtaposed the doc's righteousness over people like just conducting quote-unquote normal business while mm-hmm. this is going on all around them. The doc does assume that Lee doesn't speak English, though, so he's not like totally anti-racist. <laughs> Lee to speak English. <laughs> Which I think Lee is using to his advantage, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I think at Have some we point. Have heard him speak barely, before? like, a yeah. sentence here or there to establish that he completely understands uh, everything that's going yeah. on, which yeah. I assume at some point... He's an operator of Mr. Yeah. Purse, too. Yeah, so he's going to have a lot of information that he may not have otherwise had once Hurst was in town. So, elsewhere in town, um, so some weird shit goes down. So... Martha goes to Alma and proposes that Martha become the town teacher because the other lady left town. Yeah. And, I mean, what the fuck was that about? This is an absolute classic Alma hissy fit. We get two of them Mm. in this episode. This scene is, every line in it is like a double entendre, just barbs aimed at the other woman that escalates. And... Alma literally doesn't know how to make a cup of tea, which I really need to bring up. Like, she doesn't know how to boil water. Yeah, she was like, room service usually handles it. (laughs) But I do love the way that they sort of, I mean, this is the first time they've interacted without male supervision, right? It kind of goes off the rails, though. Like, you think so quickly. They're being respectful and courteous to begin with, then, you know, like, then she makes the suggestion, and it's like a Switch flips for Alma. Oh, absolutely. Because all of a sudden she gets territorial. You want to teach my child. You want to do this and that. Mm -hmm. Like, it's an overreaction. But I'm not sure how Martha was expecting Alma to welcome her presence in her room either. Yeah. Well, slightly better. Slightly better than that. Slightly better than that. Because she did bring a gift basket to their new house, (laughs) if you will recall. She was definitely inserting herself into their lives. So why would she anticipate that she would be so, like, against the schooling thing? I don't... I actually didn't understand why Alma was so pissy about it. I was like, is this a pregnancy thing? She can't get pissy about anything. True, true, true. But it it, it ultimately results in Martha going, going to Seth and being like, we don't need to fuck anymore. Like, you're off the hook with me. You're taking care of my kid. We can be done. And it was very, I don't know, indirect. Like, Alma's upset, so Martha backs off Seth. Yeah, I think Alma, the undertone of what Alma says to her in that scene is basically like, your husband is still under some degree of influence, care, or influence. I forget what the exact word is that she uses, like, do you mean to take Sophia into your charge as well? Yes. And she says, yes, as well as my son. Oh, yeah. who else would I mean? Mm-hmm. And of course, the unspoken person there is Seth. Yeah. Basically, Alma's saying, if you think you have Seth under your charge, you don't really. Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of sets Martha off. Ooh, I didn't get that. Maybe that's what was missing for me. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't get that either, that. but I can see it. 
Yeah. I, I watched the scene like three times. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? Where are these ladies Brandy, you, should, you should rewrite the scene. And then you have <laughs> like, I buy that that was potentially what should have happened in that mm-hmm. sequence for that to make sense. But uh, I didn't walk away with that understanding. Now, whether Alma's actually right in what she's hinting towards Martha, I mean, we were just talking in the last episode that Seth's willing to leave town if that's mm-hmm. what she wants, blah, blah, blah. And then what he ultimately says to Martha is, whether or not our relationship is being consummated, I'm not going to go for right. Alma either. Right. Um, is the gist of what he's saying. And so I think Alma's kind of grasping at straws. I think she is on her own. And, and well, also, which makes the Ellsworth proposal a little bit more legitimate. Right. So, like, if she says, like, your husband's still looking after me, it's like, is he? Because that's not the gist that I got from your last conversation mm-hmm. with him. It feels like you're being a little defensive because you, you know are in a bad spot and then she goes and tries to slap mrs ring out so this was incredible this one of my favorite scenes in the show so far and i hated his ring when she was introduced because i didn't understand her now yeah. i understand the pinkerton agent more than i understood her school marm version i think that this is a very feminist fight um <laughs> okay What's your what's your stance on that? Okay. Let's hear your argument. So, uh, so it's not it doesn't pass Bechdel test a hundred percent because they do talk about Seth. Well, no, they talk about Seth and Al. I mm, think right. Al gets invoked, but uh, in every other sense, it is very much like this is my motive, this is what I want, and you're fucking it up from both of them. Mm-hmm. And the way that they're challenging one another was just felt so empowering for two women who could be disempowered. Like, we've seen Alma 100% disempowered. And I guess Isringhausen, although she was, you know, it was a guise. But, yeah, I mean, I just thought it was an excellent argument. And for me, it doesn't, feminism doesn't have to be, like, warm, fuzzy, you know, like, supportive. This was, like, negotiation and big picture stuff and they were all operating operating out of what their own needs were mm-hmm. so i loved it and the final line is so great you've had your fit of temper get the fuck back to your room <laughs> <laughs> I love that yeah. So much. yeah you only see them in their rooms too isringhausen and alma they're just always um, all the scene setups are in their rooms they're so rarely outside of the hotel i yeah. mean the thoroughfare is no place for a lady I just can't constantly wonder about this this thing where where Alma has no status. Oh, well, not zero status. Obviously, she's a rich widow, and I guess being a rich widow confers an amount of privilege and independence to her. So, how does that change when she has the baby? Like, mm-hmm. could she still stay the rich widow who just has a baby, or is that like off the table once she has a baby? I think what will depend quite a bit is what 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 that'll hinge on is her marital status because if she is married off mm-hmm. it protects her in a sense because then people are like oh father the baby you know yeah and then they can default to the guy to be the decision maker again yeah um which i'm not sure alma would love she could just leave town to have this baby and then come back with some story yeah I mean, I she's so already true. adopted one ward. She could pretend that some other circumstance arose, right? Like, create just 
enough of a sheen of a story that people can believe. Yeah. Which is pretty much already what she's going to be doing if she marries Ellsworth. Exactly. So it's like, why even give up your your independence and your ability to make your own monetary choices just so that your child can have, you know, like a slightly different life when a perfectly good lie can do it too. Uh, The other thing that we're not weighing into it is what if the Pinkertons were, uh, I don't know, good at their jobs and and she did get framed for her husband's murder. What then? She could be stripped of all power. She Mm -hmm. could be... Hung or I think there was. I, I guess, guess she's trusting Al on that point and his plan, which we see him start to enact in this episode to double cross Isringhausen, who I suspect might think that she's being double crossed. Mm-hmm. She seems smart enough to know that right. Al's probably not just agreeing this easily. So we'll see how well that works. Yeah, and she's essentially structured the payment so that Al has to burn the confession from the Pinkertons. So there's right. no way that or Alma... Hand it over. Uh, hand yeah. it over so that Alma can't have the evidence to be used against the family in the He doesn't right. seem bothered by that. He seems to have already thought that she would... Yeah, I mean, this is one of those who's one step ahead things mm-hmm. that'll be fun to see play out. Um, but Adams is nowhere to be found. Thank God. I don't know what happened to yeah. him. They reference him getting a payment, and I'm like, where is that guy? We haven't <laughs> seen him in a minute. He can stay fucked off wherever he is. Um... <laughs> I do want to... I think he's to... on Lost this season. <laughs> yeah, this is when he was back on Lost. <laughs> Another line I want to internalize and, and use in my own life is Alma's epic takedown of Isringhausen, which is, my beliefs about you have to do with your soul, which I believe is cold and ungenerous. Cold and ungenerous. But then she gets flustered and she just repeats herself again. She's like, cold and ungenerous. <laughs> like, you already said True. that, Alma. True. It's okay. <laughs> She should have practiced a few more, like, barbs before she went into the room. (laughs) You can suck cock by choice. (laughs) No, she's standing against me, suck cock by choice. Yeah, Isri Hauser would be like, yes, I do. (laughs) She wouldn't be phased by that. (laughs) Why does she sound like she's from Jersey? Anyways, Isri Hauser definitely has, like, the accent came out in full effect. Because she's no longer pretending to be somebody she isn't, I guess. Yeah. But I'm like, where does she imagine she's from? I don't know. I the East sure, Coast? I am sure that Sarah Paulson had, like, full backstory figured out on this character. She seems like the type to really dive deep. All right. What are we missing? Oh, Charlie. It's very sad. But Charlie goes to Bill's grave site and says he's worried about Jane. Lots of talking to dead people in this episode. Yeah. Disembodied heads, dead graves. Heads. He takes the head out onto the balcony to wash the bicycle race. Did he unwrap it? He unwrapped it. Yeah, he, he opened like... it. Luckily, we don't have to see it. It's a little bit of a Gwyneth Paltrow moment. Um, <laughs> that I don't was know, a seven where, where are we going people? with this head? Other than it gives us the absolutely joyful scene of Dan reacting to realizing that there's a head in the box, which I also backed up to watch again because this is so funny when he, like, Jumps up when he realizes the head's <laughs> in the box. I don't know. It's it's weird. It's like they initially they gave Al a walking impediment as like the result of his stroke, and also this like, are we to believe that he's lost some of his faculties? Like he's now I don't know. Rather talking 
to the head than his friend. He seems a little less subtle to me in the way that he's dealing with things. You know, in the previous episode, he is not able to get the info he wants out of Charlie mm-hmm. um, because he overplays his hand, basically saying that Joni told him what happened. And I was like, oh, Charlie was about to tell you something. <laughs> and then you just overstepped. So yeah. I think he's a little off his game. But I would rather watch him talk to a head in a box than monologue while he's getting his cock sucked. Yeah, I like this version of Al. That's true. I would much rather this than that. Yeah. And there's Dora, who gets made fun of. Dolly. Oh, Dolly. She gets fat shamed. Like, you could tell that she is a girl who would fuck for food. Yeah. That wasn't cool, Deadwood. (laughs) There's a moment where Al and Dan talk about... Dan's, like, worried about Al talking to himself in his office all the time. Mm -hmm. And and Al's like, you haven't gotten to that age where there are certain thoughts you should keep to yourself, but you want to voice out loud. And I kind of like that. I like that moment. Nice nice cover from the writers. Yeah. Why they're doing this. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) They're definitely leaning into the theatrical elements of the show in the last few episodes. And they're not unenjoyable, Mm -hmm. but sometimes it is kind of like less natural from a character standpoint, I guess. I will say that I am hopeful because of uh, the writer of this episode is involved in the movie. So Regina Carrado, uh, I looked her up because she was new and uh, she was with the show for the season and next season. This was her first episode, but she has since gone on to write a whole bunch on a lot of places. She's a co-executive producer on the movie. And I did notice that when it was a female writer, we were getting more scenes between two women. Mm-hmm. Uh, for sure. Multiple scenes between mm-hmm. two women. We had Martha and Alma. We had Jane and um, Joni. I'm probably missing one, but... Alma and Isringhausen. Alma. Yeah. I mean, it was jam-packed with, like, lady-on-lady lady conversation. Yeah. No Trixie, really, in this episode. She's, like, briefly there in the hardware store, I think, but... I guess she's busy making... Figuring out she's what her figuring out her go. decimals. She's going to figure it out. I didn't miss Trixie, but I think that's because the other women were given mm-hmm. a lot of material. And so I'm hopeful that that will be reflected in the film as well. Um, but until then, as always, find us on Twitter. We would love to have engagement there. And personally, I'm at Lynn Sternberger. I'm at Lee Brandy, O-U-I-B-R-A-N-D-I. And I'm at Slowbear, S-L-O-B-E-A-R. And we will be back next weekend with another episode of Ladywood, uh, which you can also find at Ladywoodcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Thank you for Thank listening. You. Bye.